electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange in Progress. Fed Chair Jay Powell wrapping up a live Q&A session at the Economic Club of Washington, D.C. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and welcome to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check on markets, because what a, I'll call it a roller coaster if you sort of consider it only as one hump at this point. Uh, the moment the Fed Chair began speaking uh, with his relaxed demeanor and again talking about the disinflationary process being underway, we saw an immediate rally in stocks and an immediate plunge in bond yields. Well, a lot of that has since reversed. He did make some comments just towards the end of the interview there where he said if inflation I think he said something to the effect of inflation stays high or rises, they might have to do more rate hikes than what is currently priced into the market. So a little bit there of a pushback against what uh, the markets are saying is something we've been talking quite a lot about with Steve Leisman. So at the moment, the Dow's up 80 points. I turned positive by, I think, more than 200 there at the highs a moment ago. Ten-year note, 3.627%. So we're not quite back to where we were uh, before Powell began talking. Took a dip lower, and now it's rebounding back to the upside. Do we want to go to Steve? We'll go to Sarah Malik. She's chief investment officer at Nuveen. Sarah, thanks for joining us. And uh, what's your knee-jerk reaction here to what you've heard? I'm not surprised to see Powell generally stay the course because payrolls was one data point, but, but until the March meeting, we have two more CPI prints and another payroll print. The question isn't about the 25 basis point hike in March. It's how many hikes do we have after that? I see two risks going forward. One is the rally that we've seen in high beta stocks. I think that's disconnected from economic reality. I would expect that to unwind. And secondarily is, even when we do eventually get that Fed pause, what does a pivot mean? It could mean two things. One is we're in a recession and eventually we go to rate cuts. But if they pause and the impact of monetary tightening doesn't get inflation to 2%, they could eventually start hiking again. And then we eventually hit our recession. I don't think the market is pricing in all of those scenarios yet. All right. Steve Leesman has made his way over. Steve, what are the big takeaways for you? Well, he ended 11 you? minutes early. Can it you wasn't believe my that? Fault. I don't know. I he had left more time on the table. Yeah. Um, I, I think that uh, finally Powell kind of went out of his way to say or to answer a question that Rubenstein never even asked, which is that if it gets worse, what will you do? Originally, there was a very dovish take on what Powell was saying. He did not go out of his way to say, if this kind of strong jobs market continues, we're going to have to do more. Right. Which was, would have echoed what Kashkari, Daly, and Barkin have said. Then he sort of did it. I don't know if we have the SOT cut, guys. I don't know. If we, but what I can tell you, he said, look, if this, we don't have it. Okay. So if this, because it ended so early, they didn't have time in the back. <laughs> but if this kind of jobs numbers continue, if inflation does not come down, then we will do more. And I don't know if that's the moment. You guys could put the tick it up. If that's the like moment it. you had that reversal. Yes. So. The question is, what do you do with that? I think the expectation among a lot of folks is that this jobs number we had for January was anomalous in its size, but perhaps not in its direction sure. and, and, and its overall sense of it being still a strong jobs market. The question is whether or not you read through the lines of what Chair Powell is saying, and is he feeling this disconnect between the job market and inflation? Because we had the wages come down a bit, we've had inflation coming down, and yet you have this very strong unemployment, very low unemployment rate and very strong job market. How much is he willing 
to go with that and not very much yet, it appears. A couple of additional observations. Number one, he didn't seem perturbed by much. He seemed very relaxed. Am He's I wrong? He's a cool character. He's been very cool throughout <laughs> but, this. That is true. But he didn't seem, and Sarah, I'll ask this to you as well, mm-hmm. he didn't seem like he was coming there to set the record straight and everyone misinterpreted what I said last Wednesday. <laughs> and now, Sarah, I didn't get that vibe at all. And I forget who it was on this show a couple days ago who said, the biggest problem was his disposition last Wednesday. That, that was he Lindsay was yesterday. Too relaxed. Was that what Larry Lindsay Larry said? Larry said he was too relaxed. I can imagine Larry is not happy with uh, with the tone. Again, I'm not sure that, that this is necessarily the wrong note to be striking, Sarah, but what do you think? I think we've seen this movie before. Often Powell makes these comments at the FOMC. The market takes it from a dovish point of view. Then we see other Fed speakers come out and basically talk down expectations, become more hawkish. A week later, I didn't expect him to do anything different than he did last week. The issue for the markets is that we just haven't seen the impacts of monetary tightening yet, so we don't know what that means. I think it can mean a few things. One thing I'm worried about is earnings growth. Uh, Really, revenues are expected to grow high single digits this year. Revenue growth has been so much based on pricing power. And with inflation falling as significantly as it is, if companies need to reduce their prices, I think that collapses the earnings growth story. That's one issue I'm worried about. Secondarily, most of the rally in January was based on lower yields. So if we can't rely on yields remaining low going forward or continuing to decline, I think that rally may run out of run out of steam. Yeah, I'll just say one thing that I know about Jay Powell. He does not believe it is in his brief to freak the markets out. Mm -hmm. So he wants to do he wants to run this thing like an oil tanker, long measured turns. He doesn't want to turn on a dime. So to the extent that things are changing, but you have markets, to watch over time. This was the big question last week is, did the market jump to the conclusion that he was changing? You know, they immediately came away from that presser going, oh, forget it. I mean, they're, he's not a Volcker anymore. Like, we're fine, you know. And in, in this idea that he would want to get out there and correct that takeaway, he didn't appear to do so. I know you got Seth coming up, and we have a great guest right here right now. But, but here's the thing. I, I, I think one of the key moments of the press conference was when he acknowledged The problem between the Fed and the market was not the reaction function, not the misunderstanding about how the Fed would react. It was a difference in the outlook. Sure. And then if you could, guys, I don't know if you can do this, but back, give me the two year back from Wednesday. Let's do the tail of the tape. Market came in with, I think, a very sort of hawkish expectation, Mm -hmm. didn't get it. There's that dip. You see that dip? Right. That dip on your left is the two o'clock meeting. It dipped down, went flat. And then that rise on the right, that's 830 on Friday morning. That, so what happened was the Fed didn't say anything. The market took the data, input it into its understanding of the reaction function, and came up with a higher rate on its own. But so is that, he is, didn't change the reaction function. It's just a difference in the outlook. And the market now is a whole lot closer to where the Fed was beforehand. That's true. You know, on that note, let's bring in Seth Carpenter. He's global chief economist at Morgan Stanley. Seth, uh, we're so glad you could be with us. Um, what are your thoughts? I mean, where... My head's getting all confused now because we've seen yields rise since the strong jobs report. What is the message you think Powell has just left the market with? Well, I think Steve's point was a really useful one, which is Powell did emphasize the market. You know, you kind of have to make your own forecast to some extent. And the strong jobs report caused a sell off in rates. So I think to that extent, Powell would be happy with that initial reaction. Uh, My view, though, was that he was trying to reiterate a lot of what he had said at the press conference, that they're serious about getting inflation down. He used increases, plural, at the press conference. He came back to that and he reinforced that when it came time to interpret the um, 
jobs report. So he's trying to show just how serious they are. Uh, but at the end of the day, he's never going to get away from the fact that they pay attention to the data. And it really depends on how the data evolved for them to uh, decide what to do. Let's bring in Rick as well. Uh, Rick, if you're ready out there in Chicago, what, what are your thoughts uh, in response to what you've just heard? You know, I think that everyone keeps trying to give the Fed almost a personality in the marketplace. And I just don't find it true on any level. The market is a discounting mechanism. It gets more information. It takes the information. It assimilates assimilates it and it spits out an output. The output many times is different than the inputs were because the information has changed. The jobs report Friday was strong. The market moved. Whether there was Fed guidance, if the, if, if the jobs report would have been minus 519,000, they could have jawboned all day long and all weekend long and all Monday long. And Mr. Rubenstein could have had a much more aggressive interview this morning and it still wouldn't have changed things. The markets would have been much different, in my opinion, than they are now. The Fed, obviously, everyone that trades pays attention to the Federal Reserve because they're pulling the levers. But in the end, pulling the levers or not, if the market doesn't assimilate the information in the same way the Fed does, you'll get more curve inversions. If they do, you'll get less curve inversions and you'll potentially be on the same page as the Fed. But to think that the Federal Reserve has some magic power or personality that's either drawing the market investors to think the way they do, I think makes no sense whatsoever. Seth, it's interesting. If you were to have looked at the market, left to go have lunch, came back and said, oh, did Powell even talk yet? I mean, it's almost it's almost as if this this big event then suddenly didn't happen because now we're pretty much back to where we were. Does that make sense to you? I mean, you are seeing something of a round trip, and I think part of that is he started off uh, pretty gentle, as, as Steve Leisman said. He is, does not see it as part of his remit to really shock the markets. And I think if people came into it looking for a hawkish reset after the jobs report, they didn't get it initially. He came through. He was continued to be measured the way he was at the press conference, saying, look, we take it very seriously. We have, a, I think he said, significant way to go in order to bring inflation down. Uh, and so I think the market ended up getting back to perhaps roughly where it started. Yeah. So, Sarah, you know, so let's go back to this kind of key Powell headline, which is when we saw the kind of exuberance then give way to reality. He said the Fed may have to raise rates more if the labor market and inflation stay strong. And, you know, so there's kind of two different pieces of this. There's there's how the, how's the Fed going to react to this data. And then there's, as we are all saying, there's the data itself. I mean, yes, the, the jobs market number was really strong, but Steve, as you probably saw yesterday, senior loan officer survey, that's another one of these leading indicators, is recessionary. I mean, you turn around, you look at the stuff that's not as high profile, and you keep getting pointed to these recessions. You know, and manufacturing's been in recession for months now. Real consumer spending is flat. I mean, the senior loan officer survey's turning down. Leading indicators are, are terrible. I'm just, Sarah, that's why I feel confused here is, is trying to figure out, is this all just a difference of opinion where, you know, half the market seems to think where this economy is roaring forwards and, and yet there's this big unanswered question about, you know, whether we're actually heading into a recession right now. I think, you know, bulls heard what they wanted last week. They, they hung their hat on two things. His comments on the cycle of disinflation, which he said multiple times, and the fact that he didn't push back on easing financial conditions. That's what make them, made the bulls really excited. But what he's also doing is leaving the door open. And the risk is a little bit further out. But it's 
it's not so much the 25 versus 50 in March. It's more so how many more 25 basis point rate hikes do we get? There could be elongated tail. I think there easily might be. And secondarily, we haven't seen that impact from all the tightening that they've done on the economy. That's the risk around earnings, revenue, pricing power, and manufacturing data where we're already seeing cracks. I think that's why the market is basically in a trading range and doesn't really know how to pick a direction. Also, if you look at market valuations, they're up a few turns year to date. So market is pricing in a pretty optimistic scenario. And so I think it's tough to move up from there. Dow's down 132 now, by the way. Uh, NASDAQ's about to go back into negative territory. I just want to, uh, first of all, I want to um, welcome Rick's caution against anthropomorphizing the Fed and markets. It's very important. Don't, there are not people, they, but we treat them like people because we tell stories. But let me just ask Seth. Seth, do you hear any give at all in the connection that Powell is making between wages going up uh, and inflation going up. He, he did note that it's not been the case. And, and, and it's a little weird because that is the central thesis of why he's raising rates and keeping them high is this idea that wages are going up, so the service sector is high, so inflation is going to be high. But he noted that's not happening. It, first of all, where do you come down on that? And do you hear any, is there any possibility the Fed may eventually come off that idea? I do think there's a good chance they'll come off that idea, and it depends, shockingly, as to how the data turn out. Right. I mean, there's a long tradition of people linking wage inflation directly to price inflation, and the reality in the data is it's nowhere near that close. I mean, this is where I think that the adjustment that uh, Chair Powell has been making is important. He's now started focusing more and more on other services, that is, services other than housing, because if you think about it, goods inflation a lot of the consumer goods in this economy are are imported, so U.S. wages can't be driving those price increases. And by the way, those prices are falling. Uh, housing inflation is primarily done on the, the markets for, for leases of rental apartments. There's not a wage push uh, component there. So you're left with these other services. And even there, the data are much less than crisply, crisp and clear about the pass-through from wage inflation to to, to price inflation. So I think they are going to be adjusting that over time as inflation comes down. Rick, with the 10-year back at 365, basically, uh, which is where we were this morning, what is that telling you? Well, I think it's telling me that market is a bit nervous that Friday's jobs report uh, is going to prove uh, the notion that maybe the uh, lowering of inflationary pressures is going to be bumpier, less linear. But I don't think the market's made its decision. As a matter of fact, I think watching rates drop and how rates crawled back, I continue to think that the baseline notion of most investors in the equity markets, as expressed by their trading and how markets have moved, is that we are beyond, we're past the most intense pressures of inflation. And I think right now it is the most data dependent I've seen the market in a long time. Now, you can include the Fed in that notion or you don't have to include the Fed in that notion. I'm pretty sure that many of the best traders in the world could be put in a room and never hear one comment by any Fed official and still deal with the marketplace in a very efficient fashion. Let me just point out again, we're uh, pretty much at new session lows for the Dow, down 228 points. I was, I was expecting, Dow's at 10 I was, years at 366. I was expecting Powell to say what he said. It just took 35 minutes for him to say it. I was a little confounded by the moderator not asking him directly. And what's interesting, what tells me that Powell meant to send this message is he went out of his way to say it at the end. We have the sod, I believe. I think it might be worth it. You know, That'd be mind. great. Let's play you it. You can Absolutely. listen to what Powell said. Now, note, before you listen to this, 
He's not asked a question about this. The reality is we're going to react to the data. So if we continue to get, for example, strong labor market uh, reports or higher, higher uh, inflation reports, it may well be the case that we have to do more and raise hikes more than is priced in. That was the key phrase. That's when we saw, and I don't know if we can show an intraday of the Dow, but again, you saw markets almost a mirror image of what we're looking at. He made that comment, and we basically dropped about 400 points uh, from the highs back to kind of where we were before all of this. And Rick, what's interesting to me, we can maybe put the two-year back up there and do maybe like a five-day chart again, like Steve was talking about. If you go back to last Wednesday, that seemed to be this idea of low rates, strong you know, economy is okay, soft landing. Today, we have higher rates, market betting, I guess, on a, on a consistently strong labor market. I don't, I don't quite understand. Um, and stocks are down. So it's, what has changed since last Wednesday? Well, I don't know that anything's changed. Once again, I think it's action and reaction in the equity markets. You are mixing pre-non-farm uh, payroll trading positions with post-non-farm payroll information. And there's a digestion process after such a big number <laughs> and preparation for today's comments by the Fed. I would think by uh, tomorrow's close, you'll see the markets calm down a little bit. And in the end, any type of a close in a 10-year today above 366, in my opinion, means we're going to trade and retest 3.80%. Wow. So I think today's close, in reference to that line that's coming down, technicians will know what I'm talking about. Today's close will be very important. Sarah, just real quick, all of these things, we're talking micro in a way. You take a step back and we're at 360, whatever Rick said on the 10-year. 66. It ain't that bad. Right. And even on the two year being 440, whatever, is not that bad. We are not suffering, or at least we don't have the tightest possible conditions we could have for this economy, given the, the inflation concern that's out there. Do you agree, Sarah? I agree. I mean, if anything, we have easing financial conditions. And that was, I, like I said, I think that uh, the high beta rally that we saw, which will likely unwind, was hanging its hat on the fact that he didn't push back on that. And that's an issue that the Fed has to deal with. If you look going forward, we have a strong consumer and continuing strong employment market. All of that will lead to continued wage inflation, which is a sticky part and a large piece of inflation. And that's the issue that the Fed has to deal with. And that's eventually down the road where we're going to have to pay the piper in a sense of how, how what is all of that tightening going to have in terms of impact on the economy. Uh, I'm watching pricing power for companies very closely because eventually with inflation falling, they'll have to bring down prices. And that's when we'll see more broad cracks in the employment market not just in the technology industry like we've seen mostly so far. That's a Lil Brainerd idea that, that profit margins have been a part of the inflation problem and that profit margins coming down, Absolutely. which is, of course, difficult for the stock market, yeah. is part of the inflation solution. Seth, we'll give you the final word here. Uh, what do you say when your wife says, what, what, did, what happened with Jay Powell today? <laughs> Uh, I, I will say that he tried to um, reiterate the message he's been trying to make, which is that they're committed to bringing inflation down. Uh, I think, you know, the market reaction sometimes uh, is, get, is looking for an excuse. To, to Rick's point, there's a positioning uh, component to everything that goes on. I do think he, uh, in contrast to what Steve said at the very beginning, he said, you know, that he was asked, would you do anything different if you had had the jobs data? He punted on that. So he had an opportunity to be really hawkish if he wanted to. Instead, what he wanted to do was to be measured. He's trying to lean against the overly dovish interpretation, but I don't think he's trying to shock markets right now. 
All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you all so much today. Seth Carpenter, Sarah Malik, Rick Santelli, and of course, Steve Leisman. Still ahead, it's a very busy hour because we just had one of the buzziest product launches in recent memory. That's what I'm calling it anyway. It's not from Apple, it's from Microsoft. Their big AI event is underway and we'll bring you all the headlines we've been getting as we count down to our first on CNBC interview with Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella in just a few minutes. But first, we'll get another view from the C-suite. The CEO of Royal Caribbean joins us on the heels of their better-than-expected results. We'll ask how sustainable demand is. And as we head to break, here's a look at markets. Dow's down 189, 10-year yield just about session highs at 3.66%. Keep an eye on that level like you heard Rick say. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional quality expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com slash CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Welcome back, everybody. Dow's been up. It's been down. We're currently lower by 129 points as we digest what we just heard from Fed Chair Jay Powell. And with Microsoft's AI event underway, that stock is popping. We'll have more on that in a moment. But first, Dom Chu has our numbers. Dom? All right. So just like in that chart you saw behind you there, it's been a roller coaster ride for markets, although not in a very dramatic fashion. We're not talking 2 3 4% moves up or down, but we are talking about some big moves in the S&P from peak to trough. Right now, 4,104 is the level for the S&P 500, down six points. At the lows of the session, we were down 15. At the highs of the session here, uh, again, up around 51 points here. So take a look at just that move that we've seen. We're tilting a little bit more towards the downside. The Dow Industrial is off about 155 points. The Nasdaq Composite is now just about flat on the session, but again, a lot more volatility in that tech trade. During the remarks from Fed Chair Jay Powell at the Economic Club of Washington, interest rates a key focus there. We're watching specifically the two-year note yield, which a lot of traders are using as a proxy for kind of the, the direction of shorter-term interest rates. We're at 4.4 right now, just about the middle of the trading range today. But as you can see, over the course of the last couple of months, we've been fairly range bound to the downside by around 4.25, 4.3 to the upside around 4.73 percent. Here is where we're trying to figure out where the direction of future interest rates are. So we're watching that 10 year, two year note yield rather. Also on the corporate headlines front, Zoom video, the latest company to announce job cuts, 
roughly 15% of their workforce, up 6% as the stock move there. It continues this trend about tech and tech-related companies cutting jobs and then seeing a stock boost, at least near term. But as you can see, Zoom Video has been on a longer-term downtrend, losing 42% of its value in the last year. And then speaking of technology, many of those AI-related stocks in focus here, artificial intelligence, a key focus of our investors near term because of the momentum that we've seen and, of course, because of the big Microsoft announcement we'll hear later on. Microsoft shares Alphabet both up one and a half to two and a half percent. Baidu, the Chinese tech company, unveiling its own chatbot coming up, up 10 percent. Meanwhile, C3AI and the ARC Autonomous Tech and Robotics ETF are both down. But don't be fooled, Kelly, in the near term, at least on a year to day basis. Both of those AI and autonomous robotics related stocks or ETFs are up massively, giving back some today. We'll keep an eye on those, Kelly. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. Let's get to all the big headlines so far out of Microsoft's AI event, which is just wrapping up. Steve Kovac is here with the highlights. Let's also bring in CNBC.com tech reporter Jennifer Elias on what this means for rival Google, which had just launched Bard yesterday, and Kate Rooney looking at how the chase is on for anything and everything AI right now. Steve, I'll start with you. And oh, this is, okay, so much of this is about <laughs> Bing that I keep thinking to myself, if only Bing it was back. Bing is so boring, though. <laughs> Shouldn't they just rename it and relaunch it or try to do something to jazz it up? But but you tell me. What well, do you think are the ja- Well, here's what they are doing today. They are jazzing it up. So what, whether the name has an ugly connotation to you or not, the idea is, okay, now it's really cool and you're going to start using it. And what they're doing is, forget about ChatGPT, which we've been captivated with since last fall. This is actually taking, it's not ChatGPT being glommed onto Bing, Kelly. What it actually is, we're having... ChatGPT technology being used to give you better answers in Bing search. So I'll give you one example that Microsoft gave. Like they, you can ask Bing, Bing something like, can I fit this certain brand of love seat in my car? Hmm. So what it does is it takes different parts of the internet and says, okay, this model love seat has this dimensions, your car has this dimensions, and it gives you the one answer. Hmm. So that's the kind of technology it's doing. Is it chatting with doing. me so it says well, what kind of car do you have? It's not a chat bot in the sense of what we've been used to using for ChatGPT. Right. They're also incorporating this into their Edge browser. This is their web browser that replaced we the all ancient know Internet yeah. Explorer. <laughs> Those of us who have Windows PCs here at work get constantly bombarded yes. to use Edge. They want you using Edge as a minuscule market share compared to Google's Chrome. And putting that in there, they think, what's clear what they're projecting here is not only can this give a lift to Bing, which is very low in market share in search, this can give a lift to their own new browser. And as they well. already announced that this technology is coming to Office, correct? correct. So, yeah, we don't, I don't think there were any new details no, on that. So what what these companies are doing, including Google announcing theirs yesterday, they're starting with search. So obviously, Google, that's their their bread and butter. Bing has been around forever. This is a more natural way to use this kind of technology. Ask questions and get the one answer you're looking for, no matter how weird or wonky those questions might be. That's what this new version of Bing is going to be able to do. That's what Google intimated yesterday they want to start doing with regular Google search as well. It totally makes sense to me, Jennifer. I'll turn to you that this is where the Internet, so to speak, is is heading. So, yes, and let's back up for a second because we've barely had a moment to digest what Google just announced. The name is kind of landing with a thud. Bard, I think, is worse than Bing, personally. Um, But what are they bringing to the table here in what looks like a desperate race to catch up? Right, Kelly. So um, we actually reported this a week ago that the name was going to be Bard. And even then, it kind of fell flat with people as far as having a catchy name attached to what is supposed to be a sort of sexier um, 
conversational technology. But essentially what they did was they confirmed our reporting that that was uh, their, their launching BARD, which is powered by their Lambda, their large language model. Hmm. Um, and this is supposed to be a new powerful um, model language for artificial intelligence that will power a bunch of different applications. And the company said it wants to build a suite of products for APIs, which is so that the developers, small businesses, and other partners can can launch their own products based off of this. Hmm. Um, and then, yeah, like we we had mentioned last night, we had reported that Sundar, CEO, he issued this large rallying cry for employees that basically everyone's going to test this. We need to get behind this. It does seem very urgent. And then as we're seeing today with the Microsoft event, um, it's sort of a race to see who can launch what first and sure. whose will be better. And Kate, now we're seeing, you know, if you just throw AI in your, in your name, your stock price <laughs> will go up. If you just have some plans, um, you know, not everybody has has really um, fully developed these offerings, but many people really have legitimate use cases to offer consumers and businesses right now. They have, and it's sort of investor beware, and one of the analogies we've been talking about is crypto and blockchain back in 2017 and 2018, where you could put blockchain on the name of an iced tea company and the right. stock would rally, which is the extreme example that company ended up getting delisted. But Dom went through some of the stock performance, and there is just this investor appetite to get in on anything that has dot AI. But as Dan Nathan called it, he called it Sillyville, essentially, that there is this investor hype. But one way to look at this, Kelly, and to sort of inve uh, measure investor sentiment is just Google search trends. So if you look at sort of crypto and blockchain and searches for that just on Google, it's come down significantly. And then you look at these searches just for AI. And so you're just seeing this consumer interest that's translating over to the stock prices. I will say the difference on the technology side like Jen and, and Steve have been talking about, this is really tangible. This is something you can use and a consumer can interact with. Sure. Whereas blockchain is sort of this enigmatic thing that still, some compared to really a hammer looking for a nail, has not found its killer use case yet and is probably still years away from being something that, other than trading the currencies associated, has not really shown the consumer promise and totally. kept up with the hype in the, some of the prices that we've seen. Steve, let me give you the last word, yeah. especially as we, we, we will be interviewing Satya here in just a couple of minutes. Right. Um, final comment, remark, highlight, message to the yeah. markets. Microsoft shares are off the highs, but they're still positive. We're, we're going to be framing this as a Google versus Microsoft debate. These companies already are, have huge animosity towards each other. I think what's also getting lost in this conversation, the foundational technology for ChatGPT, which has captivated everyone, comes from Google. The T in ChatGPT stands for Transformer, a technology developed by Google in an open source way. So real questions, not only from Microsoft, you know, why couldn't you do this in-house? Second of all, Google, why did you let your rival take this? Right. And why did you make this open source so someone could come in and eat your lunch and undercut you? Now we have this arms race going on, and we have, like Jen just said, we have Sundar Pichai you know, ringing alarm bells throughout Google headquarters. Oh, my God, we've been sitting on this too long. Right. Let's get it out the door now. That's what we saw yesterday. You can bet they caught a whiff Microsoft's about to do this today, and that's why we've heard about it. Absolutely. They're yeah. One trying to front run the other. Yeah, exactly. I, listen, it's kind of fun, I will say. Guys, so we'll leave it there for now. Steve Kovac, Kate Rudy, Jen. Jennifer Elias, thank you so much. Tons more great reporting on CNBC.com. And don't miss Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella up at the top of the hour in a first on CNBC interview. That's 2 p.m. Eastern on Power Lunch. Ahead, we'll talk to the CEO of Royal Caribbean. Shares are higher after posting better than expected results on top of that 40% gain they've already posted this year. And they're seeing a record-breaking busy winter season. We'll ask if that demand is sustainable, what it means for prices and for wages. It's all coming up next.
As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back. If we're looking to travel and leisure to support the economy right now, Royal Caribbean is certainly delivering. They just reported a smaller than expected loss and strong full year guidance. But is all the good news priced in already? Just this year, shares of Royal Caribbean up 45 percent, Norwegian up 40 percent and Carnival up nearly 50 percent. For more on how sustainable this rebound is, let's bring in Royal Caribbean CEO Jason Liberty, along with our own Seema Modi. Seema? Kelly, thank you. Jason, welcome to CNBC. Oh, thanks for having me, Sima, and uh, welcome to Anthem of the Seas, where we have uh, 4,600 passengers and we're at 100% load factors. We can hear them. Uh, let's talk about your earnings, because clearly a lot of interest in pricing your ability to price cruise packages above 2019 levels. How sustainable is that, Jason? Well, we really have seen since late summer um, that, our, that our, our booking activity has been accelerating. And really, when we look since November, that, that pace has picked up more. Um, and we've had seven, soon to be our eight, eight of our largest booking weeks in our company's history. And that's really forcing really strong demand from new to cruise and first to brand, um, looking to go on uh, our, our three incredible brands. When asked about strong bookings, uh, you referenced the resilience in the jobs market on the conference call. I just wonder how much of this rebound that we're seeing in travel spending, how much that hinges on a strong jobs market. We just heard from Jerome Powell, who mentioned you know, he expects the job market to soften at some point. Does that worry you? Well, what we really look at and what we obviously we're talking to our guests every day, what I would refer to as our addressable market, not only is our, is our addressable market um, for those that are looking to work employed, but they're also sitting on trillions of dollars of savings. And I think for us, it's not just a combination of a strong job market, but it's a combination of them not being over levered, them um, having strong savings, and uh, people shifting their preferences from buying stuff to buying experiences. You're on board a packed ship, I can see, as you pointed out to us, 4,600 people. I believe North America made up about 70% of total bookings, but with China reopening, how does that number change over time, Jason? Yeah, well, well China was a little bit over 10% um, of our sourcing um, pre-COVID. And of course, we have great ambitions for China as it reopens up. And certainly, as, as, that, as that market comes back up and running, and when that market comes back up and running, which could be later this year or into 2024, um, that would be another accelerator for demand onto our businesses. And is there a reason to wait till 2024 to, to get back into China? Well, I think a lot of it is China opening up to outbound group travel, um, out, um, opening up to, uh, to, cru to, to cruising. And then also, you know, our, our Chinese consumer goes to places like Japan and South Korea um, and making sure that everyone's opening to that, that regional travel activity taking place. Well, uh, really interesting to watch this revival in the travel sector, specifically the cruises, which you could argue really needed it. Enjoy the cruise, Jason. Anthony of the Seas, thanks for joining us today. That's Jason Liberty, CEO of Royal Caribbean. Seema, our thanks to you and Jason as well. All right, Dow's down 180 points right now. Stick around because coming up on Power Lunch, Satya Nadella himself, the man of the hour. Microsoft stock still positive. He joins us first on CNBC on the heels of their big AI event and all of these announcements we were just talking about. I'll join Tyler Matheson for that after this quick break.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Mm-hmm.